Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loops episode 179. <laughs> we TB Nafi, bienvenidos bitches. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Now, listen up. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white dudes. And cisgender is not an insult. It's just the way it is. Now, anyway, there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color in Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because, listen up, the news is racist, allegedly. (laughs) And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a Black Latinx woman, and I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. That's right. And it is not her fault, and we love her anyway. (laughs) (laughs) We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. (laughs) And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops of Fruit Loops from, sorry, Fruit Loops <laughs> Patreon. Oh, me, oh, my. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors. Yes. Now, who 
are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Kenyal William Brown, who was charged with a series of murders which occurred in three cities in Wayne County, Michigan, between December 2019 and February 2020. And this episode was researched and written by Minnie. Oh, yes. Now he traveled far and fast. Yeah. But before we get into it, how you doing? I'm all right. I had to go to urgent care this morning. Not a big oh, deal, but friend. my eyelid was infected. I had oh, a sty no. uh-huh. last week and then it yeah. went away and then my upper eyelid was starting to get all puffy and oh, no. I wasn't worried about it. I figured it would go away, but then it like spread and like <laughs> my whole all around my eye was all puffy. I was like, oh, oh my no. God. I oh, was just no. worried that like it would like infect my whole head or something oh my god (laughs) infect your whole head infections are weird like that so i'm glad you took the necessary precautions yeah and and and, uh took care of yourself did you get to you you didn't have to go back to work did you oh i did Did go to work yeah i feel fine are you kidding me yeah i went to work girl (laughs) first first thing in the morning i went to urgent care and then i went to work yeah everybody knows the best part about work is the sick time yeah you didn't take it wow see that's her that's her that's her wife that's 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 my white friend (laughs) i can't there's like there's nobody there's nobody at work (laughs) oh my god our staff is like uh skeleton bare bones yeah yeah Yeah, Yeah, i know i know But you Shit care too had much. To get done. Work will never get you give you a hug back, Beth. That's never. true. That's true. Never. But it does give me money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That is a very good point. Now, I was told when I was a child by um, the black and brown women in my life that you get a sty on your eye from watching a dog poop. Oh, geez. I guess I shouldn't have been doing that. <laughs> I've never had one because every time I see a dog poop, you I, close your eyes. I turn my head real fast or close my eyes. <laughs> um, so I'm just just putting it out there. I mean, there's got to be something. Okay, to get well, those I'll stop. I'll stop. Central American bro- black and brown women are telling me. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, I'm glad you're doing okay. I cannot yeah, believe right. you went to work. I would <laughs> never. I would never. I have a hangnail. I can't come in today. <laughs> but let's get into these listener letters, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. Hello, angels. Thank you. You went to work after going to urgent care. This girl, this, I can't believe it. <laughs> Okay, everybody. Uh, What's in that bag, Beth? (laughs) Well, we got a letter from someone in Ireland. Oh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. yes. She wanted us to try and pronounce her name. And it's spelled. Let me tell you the spelling. Okay. It's A-O-I-F-E. Yes. And uh, she gave us the pronunciation, but I'm going to uh, read it how (laughs) I, you know, how I thought maybe... It was, yeah. was pronounced. Okay, go. Ayoyfi. <laughs> uh, me too. That's what I thought Ayoyfi. too. Yeah. And you know what it reminds me of is the name, and another Irish name, I think, is Siobhan. Yeah. And, and it's, it's spelled, spelled like Sioban. Sioban, yes. And yeah. I've done a shout out to a Siobhan and called her Sioban. And I believe she is still a supporter of the show. And I'm so wow. sorry, Siobhan. Um, and, but I also want to say thank you, Aoife. Yeah, it's pronounced Aoife. Aoife for yeah. 
um, for setting us straight. Yeah. Um, we do our best to pronounce things correctly. We fail most of the time, but we this do, is very, very try. helpful. Yeah. So Hip Hop Airhorns 2 <laughs> are... Uh, our new, she's actually a new Patreon. Yeah, Pop that's Cleo. right. Yeah. So, uh, guess what? <laughs> you get a tune, and Woo-hoo. you get a tune, and you get a tune. <laughs> so here goes. Oh no, they're dead. They are dead. Eva, Eva, E ha ha ha. Hey ho 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 a quick break i'm gonna gather myself together and then get back into the story when we come back hello this is dr grande the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters, it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. Okay, we are back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? (laughs) Our subject today is Kenyal William Brown, who was the prime suspect in a series of murders that occurred in Wayne County, Michigan. Okay, so we are going to get into some Estella-yayats. Now, Mr. Brown was the person who committed six murders and two carjackings. All of the victims in this case were black. And so we want to say rest in power to the victims and thoughts and prayers to the loved ones and the community left in the wake of these terrible crimes. So rest in power, kings and queens. Their names are 31-year-old Lauren Haddington, 48-year-old Dorian Patterson, 52-year-old Kimberly Green, 49-year-old Garcius Woodyard, 
41-year-old Amir Thaxton, 36-year-old Eugene Jennings, and uh, another victim, 44-year-old Clifton Smith, was shot but non-lethally wounded. So now it's time for the set team. Take us there, Beth. Well, these crimes took place in Wayne County, Michigan, where Detroit is the county seat. We've talked in depth about Detroit before, but as usual, we do want to mention that the land where Michigan sits was originally inhabited by non-Europeans. When the first European explorers invaded, the most populous tribes were Algonquin peoples, who included the Anishinaabe groups of Ojibwe, Ottawa and Potawatomi. Oh, and I'll get into it in, in our um, shout outs. But I wanted to say I listened to a really great podcast this week about the trauma that comes with Indigenous Peoples Day. We're recording this the week of Thanksgiving. Right. And they talk about specifically the Indigenous Peoples like east of the Mississippi uh-huh. who were there before um, the colonizers came. And I will be sure to um, shout that out. All right. So the three nations coexisted peacefully as part of a loose confederation called the Council of Three Fires, Ojibwe, also known as Chippewa in the United States, whose numbers are estimated to have been between 25,000 and 35,000 were the largest. Wow. Mm-hmm. The Ojibwe also inhabited parts of Ontario and Manitoba, Canada, and parts of present-day Wisconsin and Minnesota. The Ottawa people lived primarily south of the Straits of Mackinac in Michigan, but also in southern Ontario, northern Ohio, and eastern Wisconsin. The Potawatomi people were in southern and western Michigan, in addition to northern and central Indiana, northern Illinois, southern Wisconsin, and southern Ontario. So they were all over the land there. Yeah, which makes sense because they were there first for yeah, millennia. It was, it was their <laughs> land. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so other Algonquin tribes in Michigan in the south and east were the Mascotin, the Menomini, the Miami, the Sac or Sauk, and the Meskwaki or Fox. The Wyandot were an Iroquois people in this area, historically known as the Huron by the French. Wayne County was the sixth county in the Northwest Territory, formed on August 15, 1796. It was named for the U.S. General Anthony Wayne, a.k.a. Mad Anthony. <laughs> oh, boy, this sounds like a white guy who didn't do good things. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Allegedly, it was due to his aggressive leadership in combat and fiery personality. Okay, so on November 1st, 1798, Wayne County was divided into four townships of Detroit, Hamtramck, Mickinac, and Sargent. At that time, Wayne County included all the present state of Michigan, plus parts of Indiana, Ohio, and Wisconsin. The historic Guardian Building in Detroit is the Wayne County headquarters. Wayne County is the most populous county in Michigan. In 2020, the population was approximately 1,750,000. The largest ethnic groups in Wayne County, Michigan are white at 49%, black at 38%, Asian at 3%, and Latinx at 3%. What's interesting about those stats, I'm so glad you read them, is that it was 100% indigenous. Yeah. And now look at those numbers. So River Rouge, where Kenyal Brown grew up, is named after, well, the River Rouge, which (laughs) is French for Red River. And it flows along the city's northern border and into the Detroit River. It is a suburb of Detroit in Wayne County. Detroit and River Rouge were situated between the iron ore of the Upper Peninsula and the coal mines 
developments in the eastern American states. And the industry that drove much of Detroit's growth in the 19th and early 20th centuries relied on the city's waterways for transportation of ore and other goods. And I know that the waterways were important in an American context, but I'm sh- I I believe, and I don't know this, don't fact check me, but I'm sure the indigenous people were also oh, doing the same absolutely. before that. Yeah, they used it for traveling and stuff. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. It became an intersection of immigration and trade. Detroit's population grew in the 1800s before exploding in the 1900s, an era characterized by immigration, industrialization, and rapid growth. In 1917, Henry Ford began construction on his Ford River Rouge complex. It measured a mile and a half wide and a mile long. Mm, Wow. Yeah, it's big. (laughs) Mm -hmm. To support such a massive effort, Ford dredged and channeled the Rouge River to the Ford plant, fundamentally altering the landscape and creating Fordson Island in the process. Wow. Created a whole island in the name yep. of capitalism. Yep. My son was doing a project on um, Henry Ford, <laughs> Babe Ruth, and Lucky Lindy. And I was like... <laughs> Oh, Henry Ford. My, my son was like, he was doing a presentation. He revolutionized the assembly line and right. uh, the quick construction of things. And I was like, is wild racist anywhere in your text that you are reading? Wild anti-Semite. Uh, is that in there? Okay. Well, then this book is wrong. Anyway, when the River Rouge complex was completed in 1928. It was the largest integrated plant in the world. Mass production on this scale had never been seen before. During the Depression, it employed 100,000 workers. And during World War II, it helped with the war effort by building bombers and tanks. More factories were built and blanketed the banks of the River Rouge. But with all this industrial growth came pollution, placing a lot of stress on the river. Due to a lack of environmental regulation, the factories along the River Rouge polluted the river seemingly without restraint. Mm. In 1965, the Dearborn Guide called the waterway the state's most polluted river. I just, I, I, 1965, we knew. (laughs) Yeah. We knew knew this was was not good. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so in 1969, a construction worker accidentally dropped a torch on the river. About 3,000 gallons of oil had accidentally spilled (laughs) from the Shell Oil Company refinery. Oopsies, didn't know we couldn't do that. And the torch ignited the oil. The flames rose 50 feet in the air. (laughs) Wow. That is so terrible. No big deal, though. No big deal. Before the Clean Water Act in 1972, rivers catching fire were quite common and nobody seemed alarmed. Oh, the river's on fire. No big deal. Is anybody else paying attention? What the (laughs) fuck? (laughs) Oh, my God. Wow. I'm so ashamed of us. (laughs) I know. I know. Before 1985, little action was taken by the government or industry to clean up the river. Dissolved oxygen in the river declined and wildlife biodiversity lessened. Migratory patterns of birds were disrupted as fish species died out. Another problem. People yep. should have been alarmed. They they should have known and better. And I'm certain if they had listened to and respected the indigenous people who had been there before, they would have told you all this was coming. 
common. You know, yeah. this this yeah. isn't a this should not be a surprise. But however, things <laughs> changed after a man fell into the Rouge River, contracted rat fever. That doesn't sound good. No, an infectious disease caused by bacteria, and he died. The health department then warned the public to avoid the river. The Department of Natural Resources and the Michigan Water Resources Commission began pushing for strategies to clean up the river. By the 1990s, the price tag for cleaning up the river had come to $2 billion. In the 90s. Wow. $2 billion. Yeah. For wow. cleaning up the river when had they been not polluting the river in the first place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You know. Yeah. And that's our tax dollars. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think people, you know, industry is like, we got to make all this money and keep producing all this stuff and all these factories. But you can also create jobs and environmentally sound jobs that employ people to fix this stuff or make this stuff better and safer for the environment and for the human beings who inhabit this earth. But we don't have to pollute. (laughs) Bill, Yeah. Billionaires are really, uh, I just am so they disgusted from with them after, especially behind the bastards. And yeah, oh, they're just yeah. awful. Awful. And this is evidence of their work. Yes. But in 2013, the beaver, which once populated the area in the millions, but had been declared extinct from it more than 100 years prior, had returned. Wow. Look yeah. at that. Okay, so that's that's some progress. That's good. That doesn't yeah. happen without people working together and working hard. Yeah. Um, so in 1986, only six kinds of fish were found and more than half were sick. In 2015, they found 13 species and 353 individual fish. What? Just 353? I know. That wow. is abysmal. <laughs> However, know, but it's better. It's better than six. <laughs> Of you know what you're right you're right it is she's right absolutely she's you know what round of applause for Beth because she is ac- absolutely right it is 353 is way better than six however health officials say the water is still contaminated and could be dangerous for anyone to go in it. The city had its peak of population in 1950, when industry was still the mainstay of the local economy. But restructuring of heavy industry and movement of jobs offshore have resulted in large population loss. Yeah, too big to fail, right? Yeah. Um, so in 2015, the population was less than half of what it was in 1950. Many workers who had the flexibility to seek jobs elsewhere moved away, which resulted in a shift in the racial demographics of the city as it became less white and more black. And if you take a Google street walk in River Rouge, you'll see it looks similar to other places in Detroit where lived in houses sit next to boarded up houses or empty lots where fires may have burned out previously inhabited homes. It looks like the Detroit fires, which we talked about in episode 171 about James C. Brown, mm-hmm. were raging in this area as well. Yes. Um, I just watched a movie that took place in Detroit called Don't Burn breathe have you seen hmm. that one a horror movie no it takes I, place I in don't Detroit. really watch horror oh what yeah well, you love true crime i'm confused anyway I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think because it, it gives me too much uh anxiety i don't know oh 
Interesting. Like just watch just w- while I'm watching it. Yes. And true okay. crime doesn't for whatever reason. Wow. This is my weird friend, everyone. I, I know. She goes weird, to, weird she white goes lady. She goes to work after going to urgent <laughs> care. And she, and she can't watch horror. She can't she watch loves horror. Crime. Yeah. And she has Preet Bharara's name tattooed on her belly and cuddles with a John Douglas pillow every night. This Facts. is this is our OG. Yes, this is our OG of true crime. So now yep, we are going to get into the early life of Kenyel William Brown. So Kenyel Brown was a black man and he was born on July 3rd, 1979. So he grew up and went to school in River Rouge. And we didn't find much specific detail about Kenyel's childhood home life, but a childhood friend who grew up with him remembers him as a gifted athlete with a serious drug habit. Doing drugs. Doing drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, he was a star basketball player on the street and at the Beachwood Center in River Rouge. He was the best, but he had a bad cocaine problem. He went to prison and we never saw him even after he was paroled, unquote. By the time the murders in the episode occurred, Brown had grown to stand five foot eight inches tall and he weighed about 170 to 180 pounds. Uh, So now it's time to dive into the timeline. Splish, splash, take us there, Beth. (laughs) In 1997, at the age of 18, Brown was convicted of carrying a concealed weapon and felony assault with a dangerous weapon. In 1999, the now 20-year-old Brown was convicted of fleeing a police officer and on a separate occasion of attempting to illegally use a taser. So he's he's running wild in the streets out there. He, yeah, he's he's what we say uh, wilding. Yes, he's wilding. Yes. <laughs> it was the 90s. <laughs> From 1997 to 2000, Wayne County court records show that Brown entered plea deals in six cases. In 2000, Brown, now 21, was convicted of fleeing a police officer. That same year, Brown was charged with second degree murder. Moiter. Moiter. Oh my God. Moiter. Oh my God. Oh my God. You see this guy? (laughs) You know what reminds reminds me? Remember the bagel boss guy? You're not my boss. You're not my (laughs) God. You're not my father. You're not my mortar. Uh, So, with second degree murder and four vehicle related felonies in a River Rouge homicide. In a plea deal, He got the second degree murder charges dismissed by pleading guilty in January 2001 to felony charges of fleeing and eluding a police officer. Do you see that? The career and existence of a police officer is more valuable than the murder that occurred. Just let that sink in. It's pretty disgusting if you ask me. Yeah, it really is. He was sentenced to prison as a habitual fourth offender. According to the Michigan Department of Corrections, he was paroled in 2010 and discharged from parole the next year. According to federal court records, Brown was charged in 2015 with being a felon in possession of a gun after being caught with a loaded pistol. It was his third gun offense. He faced a minimum of 15 years in prison under a then federal law that was designed to punish punish repeat violent offenders, but no law to fix the problems that lead people to crimes, huh? Okay. No, none of that. No, (laughs) just throw throw them in jail, throw them in jail, and everything will be fine. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. (laughs) Sweep it under the rug. Yep, all right. (laughs) 
But in 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court declared part of the law unconstitutional, a ruling that cut Brown's guidelines to 15 to 21 months. That same year, Brown cut another deal, pleading guilty to felon in possession. Brown was sentenced to 21 months in prison, followed by two years of supervised release. And I don't know, a little spoiler alert, I don't think his time in prison helped him rehabilitate. I don't think so. Nope. So after Brown was released, he failed drug tests and removed his tether during supervised release. His supervised release was revoked and he was placed back in prison. But in July 2017, he was out again and the violations continued. And the parole violations are actually easier to make than you think. Yeah. I mean, you can't drink. You can't associate with people who um, commit crimes. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't stay out past a certain time. You have to have a job, which is hard to do because of the convicted felony box that they make you check on job applications it's it's easier than you think brown was a piece of shit i'm just saying that easier to violate than you think yeah yes yes, thank you uh so brown tested positive for cocaine and marijuana and he missed his drug treatment meetings oops all of this should have landed him back in prison however however On October 29th, 2019, U.S. District Judge Bernard Friedman held what was supposed to be a sentencing hearing for Brown, who had failed drug tests, got arrested for drunken driving, and missed mandatory meetings, among other things, all while on supervised release for felony convictions. But instead, Friedman released him at the request of a federal law enforcement agency that, for reasons not disclosed, wanted Brown freed. Now, Friedman never mentioned that request in court, though he did tell the defendant that while he was aware that he, quote, had a hard time following the law, unquote, he was going to give him a break. There were no objections from the prosecution. Friedman told Brown, quote, stay out of trouble. I don't want to see you again. OK, unquote. That should that should do it. You know, OK. The judge yeah, said. All right. Yep. <laughs> Brown thanked the judge. That same day, the Detroit police signed Brown on as an informant working for a Detroit DEA task force. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer. And I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic. And now each week, I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today, wherever you get your favorite shows. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.
the informant thing is interesting and I'll get into it more in my takeaways, but I didn't know much about informants or hadn't thought about it much until we did this case. Right. Um, Cause they're paid for by taxpayers. Right. So anyway, less than two months later on December 7th, 2019, Lauren Harrington, age 31 and the proud father of eight children was shot multiple times at his home on the 500 block of Beechwood in River Rouge. Lauren died from his wounds. On January 8th, 2020, Brown was identified as the man who had shot and killed Lauren. Knowing the police were now after him for the murder, he began moving around, crashing at various acquaintances' homes, not staying in one place for very long. On January 30th, 2020, Brown came over to Gerald Patterson's apartment where Gerald lived with his brother Dorian. Gerald later said that he hadn't seen Brown for years. They had been childhood friends, though. But, quote, a few months ago, he popped up out of nowhere and started hanging around my house. He and my brother would sit in the living room drinking beer. There didn't seem to be any problems, unquote. Except for the hanging around drinking beer all the time. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> maybe it was summer Every day in his oh, mind. Oh, it's January. Oh, in his uh, mind. Okay. I was going to say yeah, it's yeah, January. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe they Rose, were just trying to keep warm in January. Maybe. Rose all day <laughs> except with beer. <laughs> That afternoon when Gerald left for work, his brother Dorian was in the living room with friends Kimberly Green and Clifton Bo Smith, as well as Brown. Gerald later said that they were just partying and it was nothing unusual. Then, quote, later on, when I was at work, I called my sister who told me a whole lot of police are at your house. I called Dorian and he didn't answer. It's not like him to not answer the phone. So I started to get worried. When I got off work, I tried to get into my house and the police stopped me and told me I couldn't go inside because they told me this is a crime scene. Mm. The police asked me who I knew who was wearing an army fatigue jacket and I knew they were talking about Brown, unquote. Ooh. So Dorian Patterson, 48, and Kimberly Green, 52, both died of multiple gunshot wounds after being shot in Dorian's apartment. 44-year-old Clifton Bo Smith was also shot in the same incident, but he had been able to get away, flag down a passing River Rouge police cruiser, and direct an officer to the apartment. He identified the shooter as Brown, who had fled the scene. Bo spent some time in critical condition in the hospital, but he survived. Dorian's fiance, Precious Moore, struggled to understand and cope with the loss of Dorian. She later said, quote, he was a kind hearted man. He should still be alive, unquote. Kimberly Green worked as a healthcare service provider in Ann Arbor and was devoted to helping other people. She was described as a phenomenal, beautiful woman with a huge heart. Her daughter, Brianna, later said that her mother was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Quote, she just happened to be visiting with friends. She's not connected to Brown in any way, unquote. The family held a vigil for her during which they lit candles and released balloons to honor her. A cousin, Royce Jackson, who thought of Kimberly as a sister, said, quote, She was an angel. We lost a beautiful soul unnecessarily, untimely, for no reason. Our family is devastated. We want justice, unquote. Yeah, I, I think, um, what is what is the word she used? This uh, unnecessarily is... And untimely. What, yeah. Untimely, senseless. All those things came, came to mind when, when yeah. we're looking into this case. Yeah. So on February 3rd, 2020, Detroit police removed Brown as an informant after learning that he was a person of interest in the double homicide and the attempted homicide of Bo Smith. On February 4th, Brown was charged with two counts of first-degree murder as well as 
as an assault with intent to murder in connection with the incident. Police intensified their search for him, placing him on Detroit's most wanted list and distributing his information and image through news media. On February 18th, 2020, a woman noticed a white pickup truck running on Church Street when she left her home at about 6 a.m. When she returned home in the evening, she saw the truck was still running. (gasps) Yikes. Yeah. So she looked in the window and saw a man slumped over in the passenger's seat. She called police who came to investigate and discovered that the man was Garcius Woodyard and that he had apparently been beaten to death and left in the running truck. Oh, my God. Some accounts of the incident say that he was shot in the head, so he may have been both beaten and shot. Police believe that while in Highland Park, Brown had killed 49-year-old Garcius. Garcius was from Ypsilanti, a city west of Detroit. Two days later, on February 20th, 2020, 41-year-old Amir Thaxton was working late at the Next Level Custom Tees Shop on the 16,000 block of East 8 Mile on Detroit's east side. Amir was a graphic artist at Next Level Custom Apparel and was the man behind the brands Gorilla Hustle and Beautiful Hustle. It wasn't unusual for him to work late because he was known for working hard to provide for his three children. Um, This feels like a, a moment for Culture Corner. So t-shirt making is, I want to say, a staple in Black culture hmm. um, for business reasons. Whenever there's a funeral or somebody is shot oh, wow. um, or killed early, the name always goes on a t-shirt. There's always yeah. a t-shirt with the pictures of them yeah, in heaven. Seen those. Yeah. And I think it's an easy business to relatively, um, as far as black people are concerned, because, you know, we can't get loans and stuff like that, but uh, low startup costs and um, easy to produce product and, and right. sell. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that. Um, it sounds like Amir was doing good things in his community. Um, Amir was shot inside the store and left to die. Amir's body was found at about 11 p.m. that night. Police later said Amir and Brown were acquaintances and the motive behind the murder was likely robbery. To add insult to injury, Brown allegedly stole Amir's car after robbing and murdering. Oh, my God. What a dick. Wow. Yeah. Amir was described by his family as a loving father. His family was in shock and struggling to accept the loss. News media interviewed his cousin, Angie Brand, who said that all she has left of him now is a shirt he made for her business. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I feel that. I, uh, yeah. that's, that's what I have a lot. I have, I have so many shirts with relatives' faces on them. Wow. Um, and uh, I, I get that. So by this time, Brown was connected to the other murders as well, with wanted info being circulated via news media for his capture. Angie had this to say to him at that time. Quote, these are people who have families, a parent, a father, a grandfather, brothers, nephews. You are taking people's family members. How dare you? Unquote. And you tell him, Angie, I mean, we see you and I am glad that you said that because the news media, this is also another um, thing that happens when BIPOC people are killed in a violent way. Uh, The media will um, paint them as bad people. And yeah. so I'm glad and like some, that somehow and, it was their fault. Exactly. And so yeah. I'm really glad that she humanized them in that moment and was brave enough to do so. So hip hop air horns to Angie. <laughs> 
After Amir's murder, police circulated additional information through news media, stating that they had information that Kenyel Brown likes to shoot when he's high or gets angry. So he just likes to to shoot people, Hmm. I guess. Hmm. Okay. U.S. Marshals also began offering a $10,000 reward for information that would lead to Brown's arrest. On February 21st, 2020, you know what else is striking about this is how close this is to that week we all shut down. You know, this Oh, yeah, 2020. Yeah. So on February 21st, 2020, Brown allegedly carjacked a vehicle at 5 p.m. on Berg Road in Detroit. About 20 minutes later, he allegedly carjacked another vehicle on the block of Braille Street, also in Detroit. Morning, raised in South Detroit, (laughs) which isn't a real region because... South Detroit is Canada. <laughs> Next. Sorry. <laughs> On February 22nd, 2020, at about 1.45 p.m., the body of 36-year-old Eugene Jennings was found in a vacant building on the 20 block of Minnesota in Detroit. He was also believed to have been murdered by Brown, this time over a drug dispute. Eugene was the father of five children, ages 2 to 14, and oh. was described by loved ones as a selfless man who held his family together. Friends and family held a vigil for him with about 100 attendees at the vacant house where he had been found. They lit candles and released balloons in his honor. Is that the one uh, uh, with the red and black balloons? I don't know if you watched the video. I think I saw the video on the news. Anyway, so Eugene's aunt, Cheryl Johnson, said during the vigil, quote, absolutely senseless. I don't understand it myself, but with the strength of God, we will get through it, unquote. So now it's time to get into the investigation and the arrest. Hit it, Beth. On February 23rd, 2020, in their search for Brown, U.S. Marshals, officers from the Detroit Police Department, Michigan State Police, the FBI, and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives zeroed in. That's a lot. That is a lot. That is a lot of... Wow. Is all, all that those necessary? People, wow. Not, probably not, but probably each one of them wanted to get the um the credit. The cre- oh my credit god, for, do the perk lock this guy. and yeah, the press yeah. conference. Yep. Oh, yep. It all makes sense now. Okay. Yeah. So all of these people zeroed in on a home Sunday in Highland Park. They had received a tip regarding Brown's location, but he was not present at the home. So, <laughs> yeah, you're not going to get me today. Oh, well, hang on a second, Mr. Brown, because this story is not over yet. So through news media, Detroit Police Commander Darren Zilagi informed residents that they should consider Brown to be armed and very dangerous. Quote, this subject is wanted for multiple shootings. He's very, very dangerous. And our law enforcement partners, including Detroit Police Department, really need to get this suspect in custody, unquote. News stories and information became more widespread as Brown continued to elude capture. Police said he would befriend people and convince them to let him stay at their homes, but that people needed to be wary of him. And, um... Police said, um, police claimed um, the right. police uh, right. provided a lot of the information, the information. that we were reporting on, and so you know, I don't, I, I don't know how reliable they are all the time, but okay. So they also began to circulate information that they were going to investigate anybody, any one of you who aided Brown in eluding capture. 
By then, the information about the $10,000 reward offered by U.S. Marshals for assistance in his capture had been widely circulated as well. So the net's closing. Yes. It's closing in. Yes. Yeah. We're almost done. <laughs> <laughs> On February 24th, 2020, Brown decided it was time to make a visit to an adult bookstore mm. in Oak Park, where he'd been kicked out the previous week for doing doing drugs. Doing drugs in the so, sex shop? Whoa. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that, all of those things, very solid choices. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Now, I don't know, have you ever been to one of those um, adult bookstores. Yeah, but with the arcade in it. No. Okay, so we used to live, <laughs> we used to live down the street for one, and the stench <laughs> inside. Oh, oh no. Is, oh, it no. smells um, like they're trying to cover a, it up with ammonia, oh. but it doesn't really go That's away. That's disgusting. Uh, yeah, it is, it is really something, Ugh. but you know, Gross. uh, I'm all about, tr I'll try anything once. And I did. And I don't need to go back. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the clerk recognized him from the news and from the previous week when he'd caused trouble in the shop. The clerk called 911 to report Brown being in the store. But by the time the police arrived, he had fled. God, this guy is slippery. Yeah, he is. He is. Uh, and he had realized by then that the police were zeroing in on where he was and were after him for, with multiple squads and canine search dogs. So he began running through the neighborhood, through people's homes, hopping fences and making his way through their yards trying to hide. Uh, <laughs> this is for many. Do you think they had milkshakes in their yards that brought him <laughs> to, you know, their yards? <laughs> My milkshake brings all the boys to the yard and they're like, it's better than yours. It's like a to do charge of milkshake brings all the boys to the yard. So, <laughs> um, what do you say, Beth? So, yeah, pretty sure there's no milkshakes in this situation. Damn it! <laughs> Damn it to hell. <laughs> so police closed in on him in the backyard on the 20,000 block of Ridgedale in Oak Park, while the owner, a senior citizen and Vietnam vet, watched, stunned, quote, it just sounded like pop, pop, pop along the inside of my fence in the backyard. I saw about 10 police officers. The police just kept coming and coming and coming, unquote. Wow. Yeah. So it turns out that the popping sounds were fence planks being kicked in by police. Whoa. So they, yeah. So they could get into the yard. And I was looking at his, his yard at the news report because it was uh -huh. still broken when the news was there. And I was like. I hope that the police department police pays for that. for that. Yeah, shit. geez yeah. Louise. The owner of the house who wanted to remain anonymous wasn't aware that Brown was in his yard hiding under his grandchildren's swing set. <laughs> under the swing set. <laughs> this guy and his choices. I, wow. <laughs> how, how, how are you going to hide under a swing set? Just like lay there and I, pretend that you're I grass? I, I don't I don't know. Because swing, I don't know if you've seen a swing set recently, but they're not great <laughs> they're hiding not, places. No, Nobody's like, for I call the swing set on hide and seek because yeah. you would lose. You would lose the game if you if you did that. So and, just, and he lost. He did. He, he lost. did big time, big time, and deservedly so because yeah, he's cause a bad he guy. People, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
So can you imagine being the owner of that house, hearing those popping sounds that sound like gunshots and watching the police swarm your yard with no no. idea why? Yeah, no, it it would be it would be terrifying. And I, I I get scared just thinking about police. So when they're close to me, my my heart would have probably blood exploded. Pressure. I would have yeah. done. Yeah, I would have. Yeah, done. I, I don't know what I would have done. I, I mean, um, Minnie said that she she didn't think she'd be able to tear herself away from the window, even though the safer thing to do would be to get on the floor. Right. <laughs> in case right. of a stray bullet. But right. I, I might. I, I probably would just stand there stunned for yeah. like a minute and then yeah. dive for the floor. <laughs> well, you know, we've actually ha- been in this situation because one one day I came home from work and the DEA and the FBI and the Phoenix PD was at my neighbor's house. Oh my and, God. Um, old, old Whitey. I, and, and this is why I think it's, it's interesting to hear Minnie say she would have a hard time tearing herself away from the window because that was what my husband was, was doing. Whitey, but my yeah. thought was to let's go inside as far away as we can. Yeah. From actually these let's people. get in the car and yeah, go with guns <laughs> and drive who, to Canada. Exactly. <laughs> who can ruin our lives or take them without any consequences. So, that it's so it's just funny our lived experiences kind of bring us to the conclusions that we we end up in and and it's just funny because our backgrounds are very different (laughs) so the owner of the house later said that he he felt fortunate that brown had gone to hide under the swing set instead of coming into his house and yeah. yeah yeah Yeah, for sure. So once Brown realized that he was not getting away and that there were no milkshakes in this particular yard, (laughs) he shot himself in the head. He injured himself pretty badly, badly enough that police were able to apprehend him, but he did not die from the wounds. Police summoned EMS and Brown was taken to the hospital where he survived coherent, though in critical condition. The next day, Brown was charged with the additional murders. Eugene Jennings' family said they could now find some sense of closure knowing that Brown had been apprehended. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up. But not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. On February 26, 2020, Lauren Harrington's mother, Tracy Harrington, said during a news interview that she wanted to know why Brown had been free and allowed to be an informant instead of locked away in prison after multiple probation violations. Good question. Yeah. Yeah. While surrounded by five of her son's eight children, Tracy asked, quote, did they know where he was at all times? Did they know who who he was associating with? Did they know what he was doing? If they knew all of these things, if he's working for you, why did my son get killed? You come to my house and you tell me why my son was murdered by a man that was working for you. And I'll let it rest. Unquote. 
wow that's fired seriously that is that's a bar i mean yeah uh and i watched the press conference with the police chief and their answer wasn't a good one no it was I, just I like imagine. we didn't what? really look into it it wasn't yeah. really our fault it was their fault um a lot of finger pointing which is useless yeah. um so at this time a federal court spokesman told the detroit news that despite multiple violations while on federal probation for a 2014 gun arrest brown was allowed to remain free at the request of an unnamed federal law enforcement agency but U.S. Attorney Matthew Schneider said that he had found no evidence of that. Of course he said that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Bullshit. Yeah, exactly. According to Detroit Police Chief James Craig, Brown was an informant for the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, or ATF. The same day Brown was released from federal supervision on October 29, 2019, a Detroit police officer assigned to the DEA task force signed Brown up to be an informant for them on gangs and drugs. That's interesting. Um yeah. I, again, I'm just looking at the dates, 2019. And by then we'd known the war on drugs wasn't an effective war yeah. um, on gangs or drugs. And the Detroit police chief, you know, I wonder, too, if um, it had something to do with the way the police had been portrayed in the media at this time, especially in the Midwest. I mean, this wasn't long after Michael Brown was murdered. Oh, right. Um, and, you know, wanting a win. Yeah. And if we can get an informant, maybe it'll help us get more wins. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Uh, so when the ATF that handed off Brown to the Detroit DEA task force on October 29th, they never mentioned his repeated probation violations. Oopsies. <laughs> Let that out of the memo. And the officer who signed Brown up did not know about his past crimes while under federal supervision. That uh-huh. is such bullshit. Yeah. They know everything about all of us. (laughs) How do they not know that? (laughs) According to Craig, Brown was paid $150 after he told police he had information about drug activity involving a Southwest Detroit gang. His information didn't pan out. And Craig said that that was the only time Brown was used by the task force as an informant. And Mm. when the department learned he was a suspect in the two homicides in River Rouge, they deactivated him as an informant. Wow. For some reason, I thought the money was better for informants. They just just paid him $150. That was for one tip and Mm -hmm. it didn't pan out. Yeah. (laughs) So it was pointless. It was completely pointless. Yeah, and I I wonder if he too saw that the writing was on the wall. Like, oh man, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Could be. Anyway, so Craig said that when you look at his crimes, they all have a connection to money, drugs, or both. Quote, it was clear he had a significant drug problem. He spiraled out of control and began to use violence, unquote. Craig also said he had a conversation with U.S. Attorney Matthew Schneider, and they both agreed to take a deeper look at what happened in this case. Wow. You know know what? And they only did so. I really don't think they would have done so 
had it they not been. They took a deeper look for five minutes and then. Uh, for five <laughs> minutes. But they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't have taken any look if he had not been connected to law enforcement as yeah. an informant. Yeah, Remember, all the victims were right. black. So right. it, w- it would have been really easy if for it, them if to If that just... embarrassing situation yeah. hadn't cropped up, then oh, they yeah. probably would not have taken any look at it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You get it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Schneider released a statement on February 26, 2020, saying, quote, this is a horrible tragedy. We are going to do everything in our power to get to the bottom of this matter. Kenyel Brown was a law enforcement informant for a period of time, and we have been and currently are working closely with our law enforcement partners to determine exactly what happened. It is our obligation to act as transparently as we can in a responsible manner by obtaining the facts. The family of the victims deserve nothing less, unquote. Why do I feel like smoke is being blown up my ass? It is. I thought you were going <laughs> to It is very, very, um, <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're right. Ding, ding, ding. I can't think of anything else to say. Ding, ding, ding. All ding, the smoke is up. Ding. It's up all of our asses. <laughs> uh, so... Do you feel that? <laughs> they say you're not supposed to blow into microphones but this is so appropriate so um but keith corbett a former federal prosecutor who dealt with informants as chief of the organized crime and racketeering unit for the u.s attorney's office for 20 years said he is skeptical that police didn't know about brown's repeated probation violations thank you we all feel the same way yeah. mr corbett yeah corbett said quote when you're dealing with informants you're not dealing with choir boys they had to know that he was involved in a lot of criminal activity in order to have any reason to expect that he would be a decent informant unquote mm-hmm. adding that his parole violations should not have been difficult to spot <laughs> i know i just <laughs> and sure it's in a computer somewhere yeah. and this is 2019 so corbett who is now a criminal defense attorney all right mr corbett said that when he first heard about brown's alleged killing spree he felt that someone failed to properly monitor him thank you failure of the system that informants are supposed to be monitored by agencies that use them and it appears that it wasn't being done in this case thank you this guy needs to run for president where is corbett (laughs) corbett explained that when law enforcement wants to use an ex-convict as an informant they sometimes seek to have them discharged from supervised release so that they can use them in criminal situations to bust others because when someone's on probation or supervised release they are not allowed to have any contact with other known felons or engage in any criminal activity But when a judge removes them from federal custody and ends probation terms, the informant is free to work with law enforcement and engage in activities with criminals that would otherwise be forbidden, such as undercover drug buys. Whoa. Corbett said that's what likely happened in Brown's case. Law enforcement wanted to use him in ways that the terms of his probation didn't allow. So they, quote, got him off the books, unquote. But he added, quote, I don't think anyone had a real expectation that he was going to go off the rails like this, unquote. And that's probably true. Yeah. Okay. 
Fair enough. But you all are still playing with people's lives. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it is not good. Fucked up. Uh-huh. Yeah. So when she learned of the situation, Dorian Patterson's fiance, Precious Moore, said, quote, someone needs to be held accountable for this. They kept this guy out of prison because he was an informant. Six people had to die so police could get a couple drug dealers off the street. Unquote. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. The- bars these yeah. people these are just truth bombs yeah they are yeah. i can't like uh, episode done stopping the recording <laughs> kimberly green's daughter brianna green also questioned why brown wasn't kept in prison quote what happened is a clear injustice and my mother deserves justice we believe the system needs to answer for this why was this man allowed to be free unquote well uh, we are all wondering the same thing. But now we're going to get into where are they now? Brown ended up succumbing to his self-inflicted wounds while in the hospital on February 28, 2020. I guess you could say that there were actually seven murders, the last one being himself. Um, no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> not, not, uh, the sa- not the same thing, but still. Nah. Another nah. another life taken. Nah, I'm going to say that's enough for me, dog. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> but um, now we're going to get into what we think made him snap and our takeaways. So this is from Minnie. Doing drugs. <laughs> <laughs> so so Minnie, Minnie goes on to say, I don't think this guy was a sociopath or a narcissist because I don't think that kind of person would kill themselves, though I defer to the superior knowledge of the OG of true crime, <laughs> if I'm wrong about that. Uh, and I think he was just a lifelong drug addict, starting drugs at a pretty young age. Like you always say, though this is an explanation, it is not an excuse. His drug addiction doesn't excuse him from what he did, but he clearly needed treatment and didn't get it. In my opinion, this whole thing might have been prevented with some early intervention, rehab, therapy, not prison. And that's yeah. for many. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Hip hop air horns for many. Actually, <laughs> how about this? Another one. Thank you, many. <laughs> I, I totally agree with Minnie. Yeah. And uh, it's disgusting that instead mm-hmm. of getting this guy some help for his drug addiction, they exploited his addiction and yeah. tried to use him as an informant. Yeah. Clearly, they didn't see him as a human being. And mm-hmm. to what end, as mm-hmm. Precious Moore said, six people had to die so the police six. could get a couple of drug dealers off the street, which six. they didn't even do. Right. Yeah. I think it's probably typical of our quote unquote justice system, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, our this- criminal legal system, as some call it now, because it's not yeah. really a justice system. No, it's not. You're you're right. Criminal legal system. Um, I agree with many. This whole thing could have been avoided had he gotten some help early on, like mm-hmm. way early on yeah. when he first <laughs> yeah. started doing drugs yeah. as a child. I think yeah. he just got to a point where he just didn't give a fuck about anything anymore. Yeah, I yeah, I think I I agree with you and Minnie. Um, I think his work as an informant and and the drugs did it and they used him. They used him up. And my understanding about informants is they are paid. But that money comes from taxpayers. And there was a failure by the police who retained him to look into his criminal history, which, you know, six people are dead. And for what? Um, And being an informant, I I listened to a podcast um, talking about 
Kenyel Brown. Um, and it was by men who had been in the system, in federal mm-hmm. prison. And they talked about how it can be really stressful to be an informant wow. and the fear of getting found out. Um, yeah. but the pressure of also having to give, um, law enforcement, the tips, what they the, want, what yeah. they want. And so being under all that pressure, I think also pr- might've contributed to his drug use, getting out of, getting control. out of control. Yeah. 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 And contributed to his state of mind being so poor and, and making these horrible decisions. Agreed. Oh, right. Well, now it's, time to talk about how not to get murdered so if you love true crime and you don't want to die here's a tip for you (laughs) (laughs) this segment is not intended to be victim blaming we thought of this segment because i read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer this is not meant to blame the victims it's just learning from other people's experiences oh no the tip we bag got, is empty. It's, it's empty. It's empty well, again. You guys need to send <laughs> us in some tips. Send us in some tips, y'all. Um, you can send them to at Fruit Loops Pod anywhere on social media or Fruit Loops Pod at gmail.com or 602 935 6294. Okay, that's that. Uh, now it's shout out time where we shout out any content by or about any people of color, LGBTQ folks, or any marginalized people, and or any true crime goodies. So I have two things. Okay. So there's a lot going on in Iran. And Mm -hmm. I earned an interview today with Moj Madara. And you can follow her on Instagram at at Moj, M-O-J. And she's an Iranian woman, an activist. And she has a link um, on her link tree. And uh, it, there's it's this living document called How to Talk About Iran. And it has updates on on people arrested, updates on activists, updates oh, wow. on who to follow, updates on how to support, updates on what's really going on. Wow. And I just found it really, really um, useful and helpful. You know, we all want to be good global citizens. Yeah. Um, so if you don't know where to start, I would say start with her. And I also wanted to shout out because we are recording this the week of Indigenous Peoples Day, a podcast I listened to is American Prestige. And um, they had uh, an episode today titled This Land is Their Land with David Hmm. Silverman, who is a professor of Native American, colonial American and American racial history at George Washington University. And this guy knows his stuff. I think he's white, but man, oh man, he could get it because he is (laughs) so... um, Um, He just he laid it all out. This country, you cannot talk about our successes without our horrors, including genocide of indigenous people and how traumatic this time of year can be for our indigenous fam. So uh, check that episode out. What do you got? Awesome. Uh, Well, I'm late to the party, but this week I listened to Lolita podcast. Gosh, have you With listened Jamie to Loftus. it? I yeah. haven't, but I'm a big fan of Jamie Loftus. Yeah, yeah. So Jamie Loftus analyzes the book Lolita by uh, Vladimir Nabokov. It's okay. misinterpretations and how mm-hmm. it's been treated in popular culture. So um, have you read Lolita before? No, um, I thought I uh, the only Lolita I know is the Lolita Express, which is Jeffrey Epstein's um, oh, predatory yeah, plane. Gross. Uh, gross. Did you That's read so Lolita? gross. Yeah, yeah I, I know. did. 
I did read Lolita and I and I um I really like it. Um oh. people people always think so one of the misinterpretations, people think it's about a sexy girl who uh seduces an older man. It's not that's not the story at all. It's the story not? no. The story is about a pedophile, basically. And it's, it's from his point of view, and he's a unreliable narrator. So he's telling the story. Oh. And Lolita is 12. What? Her name, her name isn't even Lolita. It's Dolores. And, but he, he calls her Lolita. Yeah. Ew. Oh, so, my God. <laughs> I had no idea. Oh I my know. God. Yeah. Oh, so she goes into like deep dives about uh, how women are treated and uh, how black women are treated, um, like the sexualization and stuff like that. And oh, it's wow. really good. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, she's she's an amazing writer, an amazing comedian. And um, I just appreciate her every time she pops up on one of my favorite podcasts. <laughs> behind, yeah. Behind the Bastards. She's on that a lot. And uh-huh. uh, yeah, uh, I, when I started listening to it, I didn't even know that it was her. I was it just when I that popped up in my feed. So I started listening and I was like, I know this voice. And yes. when she said her name was Jamie Loftus, I was like, that's the lady on behind the bastards. <laughs> yes. And uh, so she did a podcast. She has all these limited series. One of them, my year in Mensa. And when she, she, she got into Mensa cause she's right. super smart and she um, was in Phoenix and I saw her downtown. Oh my God. Are <laughs> you the serious? Mensa, like, yeah. The Mensa, like, get together I don't know, convention <laughs> convention or celebration i don't know what the, those people Mensa, do uh, yeah clap each other on the back and yeah say yeah congratulations so I, I wanted and... to like shout her name we were doing fruit loops at the time like jamie i love you but um i didn't instead i messaged her on instagram she uh, didn't reply but anyway uh, yeah <laughs> yeah right on so anyway, uh, that's it. That's all I got this week. Okay. That is a really great recommendation. I had no idea. I'm horrified and I'm going to listen. I, yeah. To, listen to this to Lolita podcast. I, 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 I binged it. Like, I think there's like 10 episodes. Okay. And it's, okay. it's a limited series. So there's okay. like 10 okay. episodes and I binged it. I totally binged it. It's really good. Oh man. I can't wait. <laughs> so that <laughs> is, um, Follow Moj Madara at M-O-J on Instagram for more information about what's going on in Iran and what we can, what you can do to help. American Prestige, episode 72 specifically, this land is their land, not ours. Uh, <laughs> if Wherever you get your podcasts and also the Lolita podcast by Jamie Loftus and uh, Lolita podcast can be found wherever you get your podcasts and uh, she has a ton of other works that you should check out as well so that's <laughs> i'm like what's next oh, what's next the uh, end the is end. next <laughs> all right beth tell the people where to find us our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use fruit loops pod for all of our social media join our discussion group on facebook at fruit loops pod discussion if you want to support the show you can send us a donation on the cash app just google fruit loops pod cash app or you can become a monthly patron through patreon as always we have 
have merch for sale on our website. That's right. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.